And the physiology of the right heart is something that's, that's pretty difficult to cover in 20 minutes, as was the physiology of the left heart, too. So um, I think that we, we both had a challenge, and Michelle set the bar very high, so I, uh, uh, I, I have to uh, see if we can do that. These are sort of some of the things that I want to cover, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Um, but I want to start off by saying that um, our concept of the heart obviously has changed quite a bit, and while this is a nice simplistic model, we know that this is really what the heart looks like, and it's a little bit more complex. What we also understand, though, is that um, the right side of the heart is really what we call the neglected ventricle, and, and you know, we talk about the definition of heart failure. And the Heart Failure Society of Definitions specifies that this is left ventricular myocardial dysfunction. The way I look at this, patients with symptomatic pulmonary hypertension have heart failure. And it may be right heart failure, but it's still heart failure. And many of the same physiologic mechanisms that occur in left heart failure also occur in patients with pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure. Um, and this, the right ventricle is really so neglected um, that, in fact, at one time it was considered unnecessary and was thought to be really a passive conduit. Um, cardiologists are notorious for ignoring the right ventricle as well. And, and so uh, I think that this is a real problem, is a problem of awareness more than anything else. So, as was mentioned earlier, this is a dual system, and the purpose of the circulatory system is to deliver blood to the body, return that oxygenated by delivering it to the lungs, and return that to the left-hand side. Anatomically, however, we've got to think, when we talk about the right ventricle, we've got to remember that right is not right. Where is the right ventricle, in fact? And the right ventricle, this is a, uh, a cardiac CT of the heart, actually, and the right ventricle is right here. So this is an anterior view, and the right ventricle actually sits anteriorly. When we look at this from a lateral view, the right ventricle is a very thin crescent-shaped anterior structure as well. So when we're thinking about the heart and we talk about left and right, really that's not in fact what we're talking about. Uh, I think that that's important because when we are looking at common tests, we really have to know what we're looking for and where to look. So when we project the image of a heart over a chest x-ray, what we see is the right heart border here actually reflects the right atrium in the free wall of the right atrium. And the right ventricle really sits right here behind the sternum. I think that this is important because um, when we take an EKG, for example, when we look at our precordial leads, our precordial leads really start here and they drape across the anterior wall. So when we talk about the anterior EKG leads, for the most part, we're talking about the anterior wall of the left ventricle simply because voltage-wise, the voltage of the anterior wall of the left ventricle overwhelms the right ventricle. However, when we start talking about anterior EKG changes, in pulmonary hypertension, those EKG changes actually probably reflect right ventricular hypertrophy and right ventricular pathology as opposed to some, uh, some left ventricular pathology. Um, PAH is such a difficult diagnosis to make because it mimics other things, and when you see an EKG of a patient with right ventricular hypertrophy, often what we think of is anterior left ventricular ischemia, and we sort of run down that primrose path of looking for uh, left ventricular ischemia and miss that diagnosis. So thinking about this anatomically, I think, is important with our right ventricle really being here, the most anterior structure in the heart. When we look at a lateral view here, 
what we see is that the right ventricular silhouette is actually right here again anteriorly and there should be a nice retrosternal clear space. When we look pathologically at an enlarged right ventricle, we see a loss or narrowing of this retrosternal clear space as well. So there are some clues that we can get from simple, very common tests that give us some idea of what's going on physiologically with the right ventricle. So we know that the right ventricle, again, as was mentioned before, is a much thinner walled structure than the left ventricle. It sits anteriorly, uh, but it actually is fairly complex as well. And so unlike the left ventricle, which is predominantly a muscular tube that's conically shaped, the right ventricle actually has several different zones. It has a muscular free wall, and it has a fibrous inflow and outflow tract, and they all work differently. And so the right ventricular contraction is not a uniform thing. Here what we have is some 3D echo pictures that really help demonstrate that. Okay, so here's a right ventricle, and this one's actually enlarged. But what you see here is most of the translational movement here occurs right in here, which is the free wall of the right ventricle. But when we look at this in a short axis view, what we have here is the right ventricular inflow tract, the right ventricular outflow tract with the pulmonic valve here and the tricuspid valve here. And again, what you see is that most of the contractility that, you, that is associated with right ventricular contraction is associated really right here with the free wall of the right ventricle. And here, the fibrous portion of the left ventricular outflow tract really doesn't contract very much, nor does the uh, fibrous tract here in the uh, inflow tract as well. So um, when we talk about right ventricular function, though we talk about this entire right ventricle, the fact is that there are only certain parts of it that are contributing to the outflow of uh, blood from the right ventricle. The right ventricle is also a little bit different when it comes to perfusion. When we talk about left ventricular perfusion, we talk about um, the coronary arteries, and each of those coronary arteries has a specific zone of the left ventricle that it perfuses. The right ventricle is a little bit, uh, a little bit funny because it gets perfusion from multiple sources, and again, each of those different zones has a different perfusion. So typically when we talk about um, right ventricular perfusion, we talk about perfusion from the right ventricular branches of the right coronary artery. And probably the best model for understanding this is patients who have a right ventricular infarct associated with an inferior, right, uh, inferior myocardial infarction due to proximal occlusion of the right coronary artery. And typically here, you uh, affect flow to these right ventricular branches and can cause uh, right ventricular infarction as well. But we also know that perfusion to the other segments of the right ventricle come from other arteries. So that the uh, septal branches from the PDA and the left anterior descending actually serve the interventricular septum. And we'll talk about the role of the septum in a little bit. There's also some thought that there's some perfusion from the chamber into the uh, endocardium of the right ventricle as well. Uh, which is more so than, uh, the, than you see in the, in the left ventricle. So the perfusion to the right ventricle is a little bit uh, different. Now physiologically, we know, again, that structurally this is a different sort of chamber, but also physiologically what we know is that the outflow from the right ventricle is a high-capacitance, low-resistance system. So you have actually a very, very large network of capillaries um, and very compliant vessels that accept the output from the uh, right heart. And as a result, the pressures in that circulation remain very low because they have a very low resistance and high capacity to absorb excess volume. And what this allows is a dramatic increase 
uh, in cardiac output without a subsequent increase in the pressure associated with that increased flow. When you look, do an exercise stress test, for example, and you look at the normal blood pressure response from the left side um, that is putting out blood into a higher resistance system, what you see is significant exercise associated increases in systolic blood pressure. Well, what we understand about the pulmonary capacitance is that while we see increases in pressure, systolic PA pressure with exercise, they're really actually quite minimal, even though the cardiac output should be even between both the right and the left sides. And again, that has to do with the physiology of the pulmonary vasculature. So as a result, um, we also know that the, left, the right ventricle is much more compliant than the left ventricle as well, so that it can actually take a larger volume without increasing the internal pressure of the, of the ventricle. Um, it is very sensitive, however, to changes in afterload. In other words, if the resistance against which it has to pump goes up, the right ventricle has a much more limited capacity to, um, uh, to respond to that than the left ventricle does. And this just gives you an example of sort of what the pulmonary circulation looks like. It just is this large uh, plexus of, uh, of vessels. And uh, again, we've seen uh, the complex nature of the uh, alveolar and capillary and venous relationships in the, uh, in the lungs. So how do we figure this out? Uh, well, in terms of, of, of pulmonary hypertension, the gold standard for making the diagnosis of pulmonary vascular pathology really is the right heart catheterization, and this can actually give us a lot of insight into the pulmonary circulation uh, as well. And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with these tracings, but maybe not all. The fact is, by using a pulmonary artery catheter, we can measure the pressures in the different chambers of the heart, and each has a characteristic waveform, such that the right atrial pressure tends to be a very low amplitude, low uh, pressure waveform. When you move into the right ventricle, then the systolic pressure actually dramatically increases, but the diastolic pressure remains quite low. In the pulmonary artery, we see that the effective muscular resting tone raises the diastolic pressure upward over that of the right ventricle, but the systolic pressure should remain roughly the same. And then the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure actually shows some, a higher tracing than the right atrial um, pressure, but again, a much lower pressure than the pulmonary artery. And the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure theoretically should reflect left atrial pressure as well. So that the left atrial pressure should be higher than the right atrial pressure, but again, it should be a fairly low uh, pressure compared with either the right ventricle pulmonary artery or the, uh, or the left ventricle. So that's describing a system that works normally. So what happens now when we have pathology? Well, first off, when we're talking about pulmonary hypertension, um, we've got to re remind ourselves again that all pulmonary hypertension is not the same. And we have five different categories of pulmonary hypertension. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over them, but recognize that there's pulmonary arterial hypertension, there's pulmonary venous hypertension, or now called pulmonary hypertension associated with left-sided heart disease, that really goes into a lot of the diastolic dysfunction that was mentioned earlier. Pulmonary hypertension associated with pulmonary or lung disease, pulmonary hypertension associated with thrombotic disease, and then a kind of our catch-all miscellaneous category. But the common theme amongst all of these is that the pulmonary pressures are high. And ultimately, regardless of what the underlying etiology of that is, that has an effect on the right ventricle. Now, in terms of pulmonary arterial hypertension, we know that there's sort of three major things that occur. There's vasoconstriction, there's proliferation, there's in situ thrombosis. 
We also know that this is a progressive uh, disease and that early on in the disease we tend to see a predominance of muscular pr uh, proliferation and increase in muscular tone and as the disease progresses we see increasing proliferation in the intima and again these in situ thrombotic lesions progressing to these classic plexiform lesions that are associated with pulmonary arterial hypertension. What does that do physiologically to the right ventricle, though? Well, it increases afterload, which is the resistance against which the right ventricle has to, uh, to pump. And as we've said, while the right ventricle is pretty good at accepting volume because it's a very compliant structure, it's really not so good at working against increasing resistance or pressure. What drives this? Three different pathways disorders of the endothelin metabolism, disorders of nitric oxide metabolism, and disorders of prostacyclin. Um, so then what happens to the right ventricle as it is exposed to increasing pressures? Well, it remodels, and it changes its shape, and it changes its structure. So here is a chest x-ray, and it, as compared to that first chest x-ray we look at, we see that this one is markedly abnormal. And when we look at this right heart border, we see that that's huge. Okay? So that's a very, very large right atrium. And we're probably actually seeing part of the right ventricle in somewhere in here as well. But it's pretty clear that this is abnormal. And that, again, is one of the, the simple clues that we can look at to say, hey, there's something very wrong with the right-sided physiology. But when we talk about the right ventricle, what we see here in cross-section is that the typically normal right ventricle is a thin-walled, crescent-shaped, um, structure that abuts against the thicker walled circular uh, structure of the left ventricle. What happens over time is when the right ventricle uh, adapts to higher pressures, it starts to look like the left ventricle. And it starts to hypertrophy, and it starts to change its shape from crescent-shaped to circular. Uh, and Unfortunately, unlike the left ventricle, which is optimized to work well in that condition, the right ventricle doesn't do so well with that. So there's a change. And when we talk about the septum, look at the difference in the position of that septum. I'm going to show you some more dynamic uh, uh, pictures of that here in a second. So again, here's our original picture of the right ventricle, left ventricle, and the interventricular septum. And as you can see here, this septum um, thickens. It's working, okay? and it is contracting and contributing to the output, really, of both the right and the left ventricle. But what you see here is that it's actually relatively stationary, despite the fact that the left ventricular walls are contracting and coming in and the right ventricular walls are contracting and coming in. That septum is actually not moving very much. It thickens, but it's not moving. And this is a 3D representation from ECHO looking at uh, uh, a reconstruction of the right ventricle sort of on end with the right ventricular free wall here and the interventricular septum here. And you can see that despite the fact that there's vigorous contraction of the right ventricle, all of that is coming from the muscular free wall. Very little of that contraction and movement is coming from that septum as well because that muscular contraction is really shared just about equally between the right and the left sides of the heart. So what happens under pathology? Now here's a very abnormal right ventricle here. This is an apical four-chamber view looking at the left ventricle, the interventricular septum, the right ventricle, the right atrium, and the left atrium. And what we see is that this is a very enlarged and thickened right ventricle. But look at the septum, okay? 
That septum is contracting and it's straight there in the midline. This is another patient and this is, believe it or not, the same view. This is the right ventricle, this is the left ventricle, the right atrium and the left atrium. This septum is very abnormal and what you see here is that this septum is pushed over um, and flopping back and forth but is clearly displaced over towards the left, uh, the left ventricle. And when we talk about uh, a concept called ventricular interdependence, what we have to realize is that that septum, again, contributes both to the right and the left side. And when that septal, um, that septal contraction is disordered, then it can affect either the right or the left side more than, than the other. And in this case, it's affecting the left side. And this is going to contribute to two different things. It's going to contribute to diastolic dysfunction because the pressure in the left ventricle is actually going to go up because it's going to reflect the pressure being pushed over to the right ventricle, which means it's not going to fill very well. If the left ventricle doesn't fill very well, then the cardiac output goes down as well because the left ventricular output can only be so high because it's not accepting blood very well. So in addition to changing the diastolic patterns, we're actually changing systolic function as well. Uh, and as a result, right ventricular pathology can clearly affect left ventricular pathology as well. And this complicates our management quite a bit because in those patients, even in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, when they get to this point, they have some diastolic dysfunction as well. And our typical treatments for pulmonary arterial hypertension and vasodilator therapies may actually contribute a little bit to pulmonary edema simply because of the induced uh, um, uh, diastolic dysfunction on the left side. And that makes it a very, very difficult thing to deal with. And you have to be very, very careful with these patients as you introduce vasodilator therapy because you can get the unexpected and unwanted side effect of pulmonary edema associated with this. So prognostically, how do we look at the right ventricle as well? Well, what we understand clinically about right ventricular, uh, really about pulmonary hypertension, is that there are certain parameters that uh, that predict higher mortality. Poor New York Heart Association functional class, and now this, should, this is an old slide as you can tell because this should be WHO functional class. Poor performance on a six minute walk test. Right, evidence of right ventricular dysfunction. Elevated natriuretic peptides. The presence of scleroderma, and patients with scleroderma really do much more poorly uh, than patients with other forms of pulmonary arterial hypertension. High pulmonary artery pressures with a mean PA pressure greater than 50, depressed cardiac output, elevated right atrial pressure, and then the absence of vasodilator response. So those are all things that we understand adversely affect um, the one's prognosis. But when we, and these are things that really were identified fairly early on in our understanding of the disease. Um, when we look at a group of patients sort of in the modern treatment area, things that stand out most forcefully are cardiac output and index, right ventricular stroke volume, right ventricular and diastolic volume, the mean right atrial pressure, the right ventricular ejection fraction, right ventricular and diastolic pressure, and we found that actually the absolute magnitude of the pulmonary artery pressure really doesn't correlate that well with survival anymore. The thing that's strikes me about this is that all of these are measures of right ventricular function. So clinically for us, right ventricular assessment is very, very important in terms of understanding how our patients are going to do. And modifying 
measures of right ventricular function are going to be associated with a better outcome for our patients. So how do we put that into practice when we're making treatment decisions? Well, what we talk about is identifying high and low risk patients. And those patients who are at high risk really should get the most aggressive therapy up front, as opposed to those who are at lower risk, who you may um, take a, a slower approach or a less aggressive approach. So what defines those high risk patients? Again, those characteristics that were used to define high-risk patients were functional class, six-minute walk distance, and significant right ventricular function. So again, our right ventricle really helps us understand how we need to treat our patients. And so I think that not ignoring our right ventricle anymore is extremely important when we're trying to understand pulmonary hypertension. So in conclusion, uh, things I wanted to point out are the fact that there are considerable considerable anatomic and physiologic differences between the right and left ventricles, and that measures of right ventricular function directly correlate with our prognosis and survival in patients with PAH, and the fact that the assessment of the right uh, impact of the pulmonary hypertension on the right ventricular, um, on the right ventricle is very clinically important. So I will stop.